And let's get started with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to worship you, to learn from your word, to fellowship together, and pray that you would open our eyes to what you would uh, have us learn from your word, what you desire to impart to us, help us to grow in our understanding of you and all that you've done, grow in our understanding of your Holy Spirit, and pray that all that we do today would glorify and honor you. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament or under the Old Covenant. Uh, But before we do that, I want to revisit some things I said a few weeks ago um, in regards to some differences that exist, some doctrinal disagreements that exist within Christianity over the person and work of the Holy Spirit talked about the uh, Pentecostal or charismatic theology versus traditional theology, and those differences uh, primarily related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and uh, the uh, continuation or cessation of the miraculous gifts, including tongues. What I want to do is I want to caution us by saying that these differences, for the most part, are not gospel issues. They don't relate necessarily to the salvation or inclusion of believers within the universal church, within the body of Christ. There are many godly believers, many Christ-centered gospel-preaching churches that hold uh, in some form or another to charismatic theology, particularly the idea that the miraculous gifts uh, continue or are in operation today. There are preachers and teachers that many of us refer to and continue to refer to. We've learned a great deal from them, even though we disagree with them on this particular issue. Men like John Piper and Wayne Grudem and C.J. Mahaney, great guys, uh, much to learn from them, very godly men. So, Don't automatically assume that just because someone may identify as charismatic in their theology, uh, that they believe the miraculous gifts continue today, or that they're still in operation, it doesn't mean automatically that they're heretics, or that they are not true believers, or that they endorse or support uh, the outlandish practices, the misrepresentations, the abuses of the Holy Spirit that are found in some of the more extreme Pentecostal and charismatic circles, kind of stuff you see on TV that is obviously not biblical. Probably the biggest problem uh, with people holding to this type of theology is a potential drift away from uh, a belief in the the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life and godliness and an increased reliance on experience over uh, the inspired revelation of Scripture. But that would not be true of those men that I just mentioned. Anyway, believe the best uh, of believers who you disagree with, who may hold to charismatic 
theology, but make sure that you are a Berean, that you know what Scripture says, and you can evaluate what is being taught or what you see happening against what is clearly revealed in Scripture. Okay? So with that, <clears throat> we're going to get into the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and we will begin from the beginning, the Holy Spirit in creation, which I did mention last week as one of the works or one of his works that is evidence of his deity. And the, first, um, the Spirit is first seen in the opening verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is hovering or gently moving over the initial creation out of nothing, what was then darkness and unordered chaos. And let me remind you of some of the points that I made last week when I was speaking about the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity uh, may have a primary role or function within all the works or actions of God, but at the same time, each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, they're not operating independently uh, of one another. All members are actively engaged in whatever God is doing. There is unity of thought, purpose, and action, and that is with diversity at the same time. <clears throat> now, I also mentioned that the Father is seen in Scripture as the primary agent of creation, the one who initiates, creating something out of nothing. The Son is said to be the one through whom all things are created, or as some theologians explain, the Son is the one who takes those raw materials created by the Father and constructs the universe. Then the Holy Spirit completes, uh, perfects, and adorns the Father and the Son's creation, drawing out of that creation uh, all of its potential and causing it to develop according to its created nature. So in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit hovering over the water, chaos, the darkness, can be understood to be bringing order out of that chaos and drawing out the potential of all that was initiated in creation, completing and perfecting that creation. Another text that supports the Spirit's role in creation is Psalm 33.6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. Now, you've got this in your notes. The, the Hebrew word translated as breath here is ruach, and... Uh, this is the same word that is translated as spirit in Genesis 1-2. And the phrase, breath of his mouth, can be seen as a metaphor for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, being breathed out, sent out, or proceeding from the Father, if you remember last week's discussion of procession. So the Father creates the heavens, and the Holy Spirit is also involved in that creation of the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon, uh, all of the host of heaven. 
And then in Job 26, 13, the spirit is not so much seen as involved in that initial creation, but rather, as I mentioned before, he's seen as completing and perfecting creation. I want to read a couple of different translations of that passage, Job 26, 13. Uh, The ESV, and this is translating that word ruach, uh, the, the ESV says, by his wind, the heavens were made fair. The legacy standard says, by his breath, the heavens are made beautiful. And Young's literal translation says, by his spirit, the heavens he beautified. So you see, the more literal the translation is, the more you get the idea of the actual spirit's work in creation. Spirit took the heavens, took the sun, the constellations and their stars, Uh, the different colors of the stars, planets reflecting uh, the light of the sun, Milky Way, and all the other galaxies throughout the universe, the the Spirit took those and made those heavenly hosts gloriously beautiful. He adorned them. Another example of the Spirit's activity in creation is Psalm 104.30. When you send forth your Spirit, they are created you renew the face of the ground. Now, this passage, if you read it in context, is referring to the the giving of life to all animals, birds, um, fish, sheep in the field, the dog in your backyard, whales in the ocean. All of those are given life by the Holy Spirit. The verse goes on to say that he renews the ground. Uh, Apparently, the meaning of this verse Uh, When you send forth your spirit, they're created. You renew the face of the ground. Yes, he gives life to all creatures, but the meaning of renewing the ground may refer to the creative agency of the spirit in checking the the onset uh, or the degradation that's brought on by sin, death and decay that infects the earth. So he renews the earth by causing plants, trees, vegetation to grow. One way to think about that is you think about the deadness of vegetation in the winter and how in the springtime um, life is renewed, new life from seeds growing and blossoming in the spring. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit, his sustaining work. But the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit in creation is his part in the creation of man. Job 33, 4, Elihu says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Breath, again, is that Hebrew word that can also be translated as spirit. The Spirit of the Almighty gives me life. So here again, the Spirit is not the one that creates those raw materials, He's not the one that creates the physical structure of man from dust, but he is the one that gives life to man, gives life to that initial creation. You can all see see that referred to in Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Again, the word breath. Uh, is again that word for spirit, ruach. Now, based on these texts, it's probably safe to say 
that the Spirit is the primary agent who causes man to become a living soul with intellect, emotion, and will uh, to be created in the image of God. He's the member of the Trinity who in creation imparts to man what makes him man, what makes him a rational, moral being and distinguishes him from mere animals who are not made in the image of God. So, in creation, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings order out of chaos. He's involved in the creation of the heavens, adorning them, making them beautiful. He's involved in the creation of animals and in halting the decay and death that results from the fall by renewing the ground. And while there appears to be a natural cycle in that ongoing renewing of life in the natural world, uh, that is actually all under the direction and ongoing providence, creative providence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also the agent that makes man man, giving life to the physical creation, imparting soul, intellect, emotion, and a will in order to distinguish him from animals, create him in the image of God. Now, in all of these works of the Holy Spirit, all of his creative works, his purpose is to bring glory to the Father and the Son. And we'll address this uh, again in a couple of weeks. But uh, a passage that illustrates this is Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So remember, the Holy Spirit's the one who perfected and adorned and beautified the heavens. So uh, his work in doing this brings glory to God, reveals the glory of God. And then in John 16, 14, he will glorify me. That's Jesus speaking about the Spirit, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit in his new covenant work glorifies Christ. Holy Spirit brings glory to God whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, the Holy Spirit, for all eternity has brought glory to God. Now, the Holy Spirit was not only involved in creation and the ongoing sustaining of creation, but he is seen working in the Old Testament primarily in the lives of specific groups of individuals and leaders within Israel. <clears throat> there's about four groups that you see this in. However, it does not mean that the Holy Spirit was not involved working in the lives of others within Israel, just regular people. Scripture does reveal that the Holy Spirit is involved in the salvation and sanctification of believers, which we'll get into in a couple of weeks. So in order for Old Testament believers to be saved and sanctified, which they were, this would require the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, certain individuals are specifically identified as being under the influence or empowered by the Holy Spirit for specific purposes, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. First group of individuals that the Holy Spirit is said to indwell, possibly, or fill, are artisans and craftsmen. And this is for the purpose of producing the priestly 
garments and for the building of the tabernacle as God had instructed Moses. <clears throat> Exodus 28.3, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And Exodus 31.3, <clears throat> speaking of Bezalel, and I have filled him with the spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, and, Be and of Bezalel, Aholiab, and Ahissamach in Exodus 35, 31 through 35. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, that's referring to Bezalel, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. He's filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver <clears throat> or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. So all the skill, all of the artistic ability, all of the detailed craftsmanship that was necessary for these tasks are enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And just a side note, I've, I've read other theologians and commentators that talk about the fact that all artistic ability, all creative ability, all uh, artistic craftsmanship, even in unbelievers, is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. Certainly it gets perverted, but, but art is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So in the case of Bezalel, it says, says specifically that he was filled with the Spirit of God, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, I do want to address this again real quick here. In the Old Testament, there are occasions where the Holy Spirit is said to be in, to fill, or to come upon certain individuals. However, in those cases, this never seems to be referring to personal regeneration or salvation, or a salvation event. It seems to be referring uh, primarily for the purpose of uh, empowerment or enablement enablement to accomplish certain tasks. <clears throat> this apparent indwelling was for a specific purpose, was not necessarily a permanent indwelling, as in the permanent indwelling of new covenant believers, you and I. The Holy Spirit could depart from an individual, as in the case of Saul. Uh, some believe that all Old Testament believers <clears throat> were indwelt by the Holy Spirit as being necessary for regeneration and uh, salvation. Others, however, believe that their regeneration and salvation were, were in fact the work of the Holy Spirit, necess necessitated by the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, but this was not through indwelling. So the argument is that permanent indwelling is the new covenant reality that occurred after Christ's departure and at Pentecost. And I'm not going to take a position on that. Both uh, positions are valid. 
uh, I'm just going to leave it right there. And we will revisit that again briefly in a couple of weeks. Now, next group of individuals that uh, were empowered by the Holy Spirit were the judges. Judges were empowered for the purpose of delivering Israel from their enemies, from their oppressors. This was usually after a period of extended sin and disobedience on the part of Israel, uh, followed by God's judgment through those enemies, usually, and then deliverance through or by the judges. A few examples of that would be Othniel in Judges 3.10. Spear of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. Gideon in Judges 6.34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, trumpet, and the Beazrites were called out to follow him. Jephthah in Judges 11.29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and Samson in Judges 13.25. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Uh, Judges 14, 6 and 19, also referring to Samson. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men. And in 15, 14, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. Those are all examples uh, from Judges where these men were empowered by the Holy Spirit for specific purposes. It does not appear to be an, uh, a permanent indwelling or a permanent empowerment. Another group of uh, individuals <clears throat> that are empowered by the Holy Spirit are kings and leaders who are equipped and empowered for the purpose of leading Israel. Moses, uh, first example you see is Moses and the 70 elders who assisted Moses in Numbers 11.25. <clears throat> then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And Saul and David, 1 Samuel 10.6, referring to Saul, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with him and be turned into another man. That almost sounds like regeneration. And then in verse 10, it says, When uh, they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Then in 16.13, it's also in 1 Samuel, the Spirit comes on David uh, after Samuel anoints him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That sounds like a permanent empowerment or indwelling. Then in the next verse, 16, 14, the Spirit leaves Saul. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And that departure from Saul was due to an extended period of Saul's blatant sin and disobedience. Now finally, the, the prophets were another group of individuals who were enabled and inspired by the Spirit, to act as God's mouthpiece to Israel. The prophets, under the direction of the Spirit, would warn and convict Israel of the consequences of their sin. Uh, they would also communicate God's blessing and reward for faithfulness and obedience. They would foretell uh, future events. Sometimes that would be in the immediate future. 
as well as centuries and millennia in the future. And they prophesied of the coming Messiah. Now, David attests to the Holy Spirit speaking prophetically through him in 2 Samuel 23.2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Ezekiel speaks of the Holy Spirit indwelling him and giving him revelation in Ezekiel 2.2. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Then the prophet Micah in Micah 3.8, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And then the vision that's given to Isaiah in chapter 6, 1 through 10, where Yahweh commissions Isaiah, uh, and in Acts 28, 25, the apostle Paul says, quoting that passage, that it was the Holy Spirit who was speaking to Isaiah. So those are some of the Old Testament scriptures that speak about the Holy Spirit indwelling, influencing, speaking to, and through the prophets. But the most definitive statement as to the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament prophets in particular is actually in the New Testament. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The Scriptures were written by the prophets. The prophets, the writers of the Old Testament, were guided by, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about inspiration briefly, because this certainly is a work of the Holy Spirit. Several of the passages we've already looked at speak about it, uh, particularly those um, passages in the Old Testament that reveal uh, the words or the, the works of the Holy Spirit, speaking through the prophets, indwelling them and speaking in and through them, and then the New Testament passages that were just mentioned. But what is inspiration exactly? Well, like with a lot of things in Scripture, uh, it doesn't go into any great detail. It doesn't give uh, an exhaustive description or detailed uh, explanation of the mechanics of inspiration, but we are able to come up with a general understanding of what inspiration is from what's revealed in the Word. So when we talk about inspiration, we're referring to the Holy Spirit's work in guiding and directing the writing of Scripture, recording the historical events, recording the law, the devotional writings, recording future events and God's promises and directives to his people. The writers of Scripture were supernaturally influenced or guided to compose and express exactly what God wanted them to compose and express as a revelation of his person, revelation of his mind, his will, his promises to his people, communicating everything, essentially, that God wanted to communicate to humanity. The guidance of God the Holy Spirit in directing the writers 
of Scripture extended beyond just ideas to be communicated, but to the very words that were written. And therefore, everything in Scripture <clears throat> is the Word of God. It does not just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God because it was breathed out, inspired by God. And that's what's referred to by theologians as verbal, plenary inspiration. Every word and every part of Scripture is inspired and directed by God. And the result of divine inspiration is that even though <clears throat> the words that are recorded by the human authors, um, they use their own individual vocabulary, uh, personal style of communication, that's not overridden by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit works through that. And the result is that the words of Scripture are absolutely without error. They are infallible. They're authoritative which means that whatever Scripture speaks to is a standard for truth and the requirement for conduct. And Scripture is sufficient to know, to worship, to serve God, as well as providing everything that's necessary for life and godliness. So, Scripture is inspired. It's breathed out by God. Read those Scriptures again in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have everything that we need in Scripture for life and godliness because it is the inspired Word of God. And the writers were guided by the Holy Spirit in their writing, Second Peter 1, 20 through 21, again, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and then finally, the words of Jesus tell us that the slightest detail of Scripture is without error and authoritative in all that it speaks to in Matthew 5. 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, uh, that's just another way of referring to all of the Old Testament scriptures. And he's reinforcing the accuracy of the scriptures down to the smallest detail, even the slightest punctuation mark. All of that is inspired, directed, guided, superintended, and that is by the Holy Spirit. So it is the Word of God. Now, just a side note, the work of the Holy Spirit in inspiring scriptures is not just confined to the Old Testament but it applies to the New Testament scriptures as well. And this is explained by Jesus. It's kind of front-loaded for the disciples when he's telling them about uh, why it's advantageous for him to leave, for the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to come and what he will do when he comes. In John 14, 26, it says, but the Helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That is a promise to those disciples, not to each of us individually, but we'll talk about uh, understanding and illumination of the word by the Holy Spirit in a couple of weeks as well. This was a promise to the disciples. So this was done so that they could record the New Testament scriptures. They could record what Jesus had told them and many things that we're not aware of that weren't recorded in scripture that he communicated to them. But the New Testament authors also attest to the fact that their writings are scripture. Now, one final thing regarding the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and what you see uh, particularly throughout the latter portions of the Old Testament and the prophetic writings is this Old Covenant expectation or anticipation of the coming new covenant. And not because there was anything wrong with the old covenant, but Israel failed to keep that covenant. They sinned, they rebelled against God, so God promises a new covenant in which he will write the law on their hearts, everyone will know and obey him, Uh, his people will be cleansed of sin, they'll have new hearts, the Holy Spirit will indwell them and the Holy Spirit will be manifested, poured out in an unprecedented, unequaled, and overwhelming way. He will be poured out on all people, men, women, children, Jews, Gentiles, every tribe and nation. You see this in three primary passages, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That's not just know about me, but know me in an intimate, personal way. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Then in Ezekiel 34, 25 through 27, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's a new covenant indwelling the Holy Spirit that's being spoken of. And then in Joel 2, 28 and 29, you see this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit everyone. And you can see from those passages, three passages we just read, that the Holy Spirit plays a significant and visible, prominent role in the new covenant. 
So that's an overview of the work of the Holy Spirit recorded in the Old Testament, some passages in the New Testament, his work in creation, perfecting, completing, beautifying, his work in the creation of man, imparting life, his work through select groups of individuals, empowering, enabling them for specific tasks, artistic ability and craftsmanship for the purpose of building the tabernacle, delivering Israel from oppressors, part of the judges, leading and governing Israel, and delivering warnings, promises, and prophetic uh, future events. Messages from God delivered through men chosen uh, to serve as prophets. And the inspiration of the scriptures. Promise of the anticipation and the anticipation of the new covenant where the Holy Spirit will really come to the forefront where he will be poured out in an unprecedented way on all people. And we will get into that in uh, great detail in the coming weeks. Next week, we will be talking about the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. 